Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In November 2013, the Public Knowledge Forum brought together leading thinkers on technology, politics, and the press from Australia and the United States. The event at the Sydney Opera House explored pressing questions about the future of journalism and its impact on governance and public policy. In conjunction with the United States Study Centre and Sky News Australia's APAC, the Walkley Foundation is delighted to present this series of six podcasts examining the state of journalism and asking, where to next? This episode, titled News Media as Watchdog, features Al Jazeera correspondent Melissa Chan, member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board Mary Kissel, Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson, and Sky News host Helen Daly. Hello, everyone. My name's Helen Daly from Sky News Australia. I'm really delighted to be here as part of this rather extraordinary public knowledge forum. Hopefully we can all shed some light on um, what the future of it is and uh, from the media perspective, which is part of what this second panel is about today. I'm really excited to um, be introducing the panel that I am. And uh, you've had one on the, the nature of journalism. This panel is really about news media as watchdog. And without further ado, I'm going to introduce my esteemed guests. They are all this panel from overseas, so please give them a lovely Australian welcome. My first guest is Eugene Robinson. He's the columnist at the Washington Post, and he's also an associate editor there. He's a widely syndicated columnist. He goes into something like 130 newspapers in the United States. And in 2009, he won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. Melissa Chan is our next guest. She's a correspondent at Al Jazeera. Now, she is currently a John S. Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford University, and she has had a little break from Al Jazeera, which we'll get into in a minute, because she was the China correspondent, and now she's back with the relatively newly formed, in fact, just weeks old, Al Jazeera America, which has started there. And our final guest today is Mary Kissel. Please welcome Mary Kissel in a moment. She's a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. She's also host of Opinion Journal, which is a weekday program on WSJ Live. She's an experienced editor and she began her career at Goldman Sachs. So we won't hold that against her. In fact, that's a marvellous <laughs> introduction completely. Now, we're going to do it a little bit differently to the previous panel. We're not going to start off with some statements. So we're really just going to get into it. We do want to cover a number of issues about how news media stays as the watchdog, how it becomes a better watchdog, whether my guests think that that is part of investigative journalism or whether it's really more quality journalism, what they think is important as the watchdog to keep institutions, and obviously that's government, big business, uh, public and, and private institutions accountable. So let's start with Mary Kissel, I'll ask you first, because you have been, you were named in the, in the previous panel, and also you have written a piece in the, um, the review that accompanied the program. How do you think the sort of technological and economic disruption of the media, really um, the media business, and I don't want to just get into business models and things like that, because I think, as James Fellows said, we, we sort of have talked about that for the last several years. How has that affected journalism's ability to keep institutions accountable? 
Well, first of all, I just wanted to thank the U.S. Studies Center for having me in the Opera House for this wonderful venue. It's really an honor to, to be here. And I wanted also to thank Jonathan for giving me a degree of infamy, and I hadn't even been on a panel yet. So thanks very much, Jonathan. I'm glad you read the piece. Um, I think that competition is a great thing in any industry. And I think there's a tendency to think about media as something that's not a commercial enterprise that shouldn't be bound to its customers, which are its readers. And so, honestly, Helen, I, I think that this explosion in new media is a terrific thing because it's forcing old institutions like the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, where I come from, um, to really think about what is it that readers want and how do we break news in this age where media is, is absolutely instantaneous? And I think it's also opening up new venues. Um, Melissa here from Al Jazeera, that is a brand new venue, very important new venue. They're throwing a lot of money at it. Uh, and I hope that they're successful. I don't agree with anything that they say, <laughs> but I hope that they're <laughs> successful because I think that ultimately, if, if, if you want media as a watchdog, you want media to be commercially successful because the more commercially successful it is, the more journalists you'll have to hold people to account. <coughs> so has it resulted though, this competition you talk about, in more institutions being held more accountable? Well, I think there's, there's always a tendency to, to be too credulous of institutions, uh, whether it's uh, ProPublica with the Obama administration, um, or perhaps the Wall Street Journal news side when it comes uh, to, to business. Uh, and I think that this competition will effectively sort out uh, who is giving you uh, not just the facts, but also telling you why you should care about these facts and how they apply to you, which is a very difficult thing to do. Um, and just a, a note for the editorial page, there's also a place of, for opinion on that. I think opinion has been really denigrated here. We break an awful lot of news on the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and that's, that's, that's often why people, people read us. Eugene Robinson, what's your view about this disruptive media and its impact on holding institutions accountable? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to first um, uh, also express my thanks for being in the Opera House. You know, I wanted to be an architect when I went to college. <laughs> and uh, I will date myself by saying that, that this, this beautiful building was built while I was in college. Um, I, uh, I was a really lousy architecture student. I was fortunately better at working at the student newspaper. And so otherwise I'd be a public menace. My buildings would fall down. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't worry about the effect on the Wall Street Journal, frankly. The Wall Street Journal is going to be fine. And, um, I, you know, I do worry about the Washington Post because I work there. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's very personal to me. Um, but but you're talking but about I, its survival. Well, I'm talking about survival, but I'm also talking about ability to hold public officials accountable, um, uh, which is something that, in which we take great pride. Um, you know, we have had to cut back at the Post. Uh, we went from a high of 900-odd journalists down to 600-odd journalists today. Um, that's a lot. You can do a lot with 600-plus journalists. I think that would be more than any Australian. Yes, and, 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 and frankly, U.S. newspapers were probably overstaffed uh, given international standards. Nonetheless, you can do less with 600 than you could do with 900. And one of the things we did with 900 was, was have fully staffed bureaus in all the suburban counties around Washington who were covering the, the school boards and the city councils and, 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 and the local government institutions. Um, we had domestic bureaus around the So United in States. Washington we, you had in, separate around bureaus? The, right, around the Washington area in the suburbs of, of Washington, which are separate jurisdictions in the state of Virginia or the state of Maryland. Uh, and we covered the state houses, the 
the state governments mm -hmm. in Virginia and Maryland, and we covered them thoroughly. In fact, we were the biggest newspaper not only in the District of Columbia where we're located, but the biggest newspaper in Maryland and the biggest newspaper in Virginia. We felt we had a, a responsibility to cover those state governments, the, the local governments, and, 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 and everything. Now, we still do that. But we do it with fewer reporters. I think we're I think we're going to be uh, be fine. I think we're doing a, a decent job of of it. I worry about smaller metropolitan daily newspapers uh, in cities like uh, New Orleans and Nashville, and even a city as the size of Atlanta and St. Louis and um, and Denver and and you know that um, you know th their papers are not the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and, and don't have the advantages that we have going into this period of disruption uh, um, or the ability to survive it um, as well as we have. And, and so they are, crazy, they are cutting yeah. back. They are Some cutting are back on their city hall bureaus. They're cutting back on their state house bureaus. And, uh, and as a result, I think, um, you know, I, I think there's been an impact. And, and I, and I don't know that it has been measured. Impact, mm -hmm. an adverse impact. Absolutely, yeah. an adverse impact. I think there are fewer, there are fewer professional journalists holding public officials accountable in many parts of the country right now. Um, oh. th there may be some compensation, and I think there probably is with the whole citizen journalism. Um, well, we'll get to uh, that in endeavor, a moment, and we'll get to that. But yeah. basically, I, I think it's a negative impact. Yeah. Melissa Chan, from your perspective, you started to work for one of these disruptive media. Al Jazeera is only two minutes old really and uh, it's become a very big very powerful player very quickly yeah it's really interesting because I'm an American journalist that didn't end up with mainstream media right in fact I, I joined and I'm part I'm exhibit a of uh, you know the group that is disrupting um, mainstream media in the United States and global globally and you know Al Jazeera is owned by single family essentially right uh, one state it is not beholden to shareholders. It is not a publicly owned company. Um, how do I feel about it? Well, you know, I can only speak for my personal experience, but, you know, there was a joke in our office in Beijing where I was based for five years, you know, during the financial crisis. The BBC had three totally capable correspondents based in Beijing. They were grounded. They couldn't travel because they didn't have the money to travel during that time period. And we were saying, what financial crisis? Mm -hmm. And off we went traveling across China and, you know, pretty much every week I was somewhere and not in Beijing, you know, out in the field doing what we should be doing, collecting information and, you know, disseminating, you know, that information out about China. So, you know, for me, I think that this is obviously very painful and we're having this discussion right now precisely because there is so much concern about uh, what's going to be missed in the interim. But I think it's a part of progress. Um, I think that... You know, we have to change. It's just inevitable. It's part of any kind of industry. And, um, you know, certainly Al Jazeera and, you know, we can have a further conversation if you want about other um, state-owned news organizations out there. Uh, they are out there for better or worse. And certainly in China, there's also the Chinese equivalent, CCTV, right? Chinese Central Television. And they, you know, distinctly told us Oh, we love Al Jazeera. We want to be just like you. You know, we want you know our model to to you know follow yours, and we want your success globally. All right. What about the capacity to hold institutions to accountable, uh, uh, to uh, some accountability, including your working in the United States now, where you worked in China, but also in the home country, which is Qatar. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, we are under scrutiny and we're very aware of that. We've certainly done some, you know, quite a bit of reporting on Qatar, especially with the World Cup sure. uh, soccer venues being built and the kind of labor, uh, you know, environment. And Al Jazeera English definitely did cover that. And, you know, Al Jazeera America is, has launched since August 20th, you know, again to say that we are going to cover the stories that have not been told. Uh, you just mentioned that Washington Post has 600 journalists. Uh, Al Jazeera America hired uh, 700 journalists in five months oh, you know, to wow. launch this channel. They purchased Current TV for $500 million, and I don't know how much they've spent building out you know, in addition to that. And then there was just the announcement last week that uh, 700 journalists are not enough and we're going to hire more. Wow. Yeah, but I, I think we should get away from this idea that somehow the number of journalists makes you a better news organization. No, no, that's, although right, Eugene exactly. made that point yeah. that he well, thinks the fewer numbers make you perhaps a you worse can, outfit. Right. I mean, you know, American newspapers are not um, are generally not un understaffed, but if you are if you're employing 900 well um, and you only have 600 now, then you're able to do less than you could with that. Right. Well, What's your point? Well, I, I also wanted to respond to this point about local news coverage. You know, is there sort of a, a, a crisis going on in the, as watchdogs at the local mm -hmm. level? Well, what if local New Orleans papers weren't actually giving the readers of New Orleans the news that they actually wanted and could use? And maybe an organization like mm -hmm. the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, taking their brand of journalism uh, to those cities, buying those papers and actually giving people what they want and the quality that they want, um, is going to revive that kind of local watchdog. I'll give you one example. Uh, Gina Raimondo is the treasurer of Rhode Island. Uh, great local story. Fixed the pension pr crisis in Rhode Island. Do you know how many newspapers in America covered that story? Basically our editorial page. And that was it. Uh, so I think there's great opportunity, actually. How did our media organisations miss that story of the Rhode Island guy? Who <laughs> and she's a the Democrat. Yes. She's a Democrat. It's a terrific story. No, no. But your well. point being that a lot of it, you know, you may have many, many journalists, but they're not covering the sort of stories that perhaps are important to that local environment. Or the regulatory state in America. Mm -hmm. This is an open field for us. No other newspapers are covering it. There's a lot of opportunity and in journalism. Openings, perhaps, for Al Jazeera. I, and you know, I would and agree you, with Jay. that, Mary. But, but you know, you you saw the, that story in Rhode Island and covered it in a way that others didn't, and that would be an example of something that would have been really beneficial for the people of Rhode Island to have a, 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 who had a vested stake in that. Um, but you're not going to see every story like that all around the country. I, I, but that's I, an I, argument for a public mm. broadcaster. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, if you take it to its logical conclusion. Yeah, right. But 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 my my point is that you know as even as we as we go through this disruption and maybe even if if we move toward uh, a system where your paper and my paper and other papers are, are doing more intensive local reporting that other papers aren't doing, you know that's too bad for the other papers, that's okay for us. Um, but as this happens, I just, I do worry that stories are being missed and, 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 and it's, it's because of the shrinkage that's happened uh, on staffs of those What's local papers. Some of which shrinkage used to in do traditional a, outlets. Some of, the, some of which used to do a very good job of accountability journalism. Yeah. What's happened to your readership and circulation in that same time when you're talking about the diminution of numbers you're of You're trying journalists. to make me cry. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll move on from that. No, it, it, we, we went from a daily circulation of 850,000 to now 
450 mm -hmm. or so. We went from um, Sunday circulation uh, that was approaching um, uh, only occasionally nosed over 1 million um, to, I believe, 750,000 or something mm -hmm. like that today. Um, uh, Forty percent of our advertising revenue once came from classified ads, and thanks mm. to Craig Newmark of Craigslist, <laughs> um, that went from forty forty percent of our our um, our advertising revenue to zero of our you know essentially. So I mean, he it took essentially Craigslist just, took forty percent well, of our it, revenue. Yes, and 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 others. Over um, a short and, period and, of time. And boy, were we stupid! I mean, part of this part of the story is that um, is that too few. Um, uh, too few newspapers uh, were, cle were mm. clever enough and aware enough to see the transformation happening and to realize uh, that uh, we should at least make the attempt to get out in front of it rather than get run over by it. Um, and uh, to add uh, tragedy on top of tragedy, in fact, a very far-sighted editor in, I believe, 1991, an editor of the Post, Robert Kaiser, went to a conference in Silicon Valley and a conference in Tokyo, and on the way back um, from Tokyo, on the plane, um, because he didn't, we didn't all have laptops then, he wrote out in longhand a memo that was incredibly prescient about what was going to happen to, um, to our, our franchise and how our lunch was about to be eaten by someone other than us. And, um, uh, and you know, nobody quite knew what it meant, what his memo yeah. meant. He didn't even quite know yeah. what it meant. He just knew um, something had to be done. But uh, there in the archives of the Washington Post is a memo that predicted um, uh, eerily a lot of what has happened. Mary, you had the, a, a similar experience at the Wall Street Journal, but you guys sort of got onto it very early, didn't you? This idea of a paywall, that you pay for quality, you pay for investigation if that's what you want, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's been very successful. We were years ahead mm -hmm. of the New York yeah. Times and other big outlets, and it has worked for us because our readers have been conditioned to pay for news, but we don't take that for granted. Um, they'll stop paying if we stop giving them content that is original, so i.e. breaking news, exclusive news, but also analysis that tells them why that news matters. Um, and there's also, you know, again, a reinvention across platforms. Um, the digital community, the video, the little video thing uh, that I do. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out ways... So what is that? Just well, briefly. it just means it, we're trying to figure out ways to, to communicate our news and our ideas to you when you want it, in the form that you want to have it. And I don't think anyone has quite figured that out yet. Um, mm -hmm. But that is a, a really fascinating process of reinvention. Um, but I don't think that it means that stories don't get covered. They may just get covered in a way that you're not used to, and they may also get covered by outlets, whether it's Al Jazeera America or it's the Brooklyn Heights blog in my neighborhood that's covering local news that you're just not accustomed to, to seeing. All right, we'll talk about some of those others, but I just want to come back to Melissa and Al Jazeera briefly because I can remember, and some in this room may remember, when it was starting and they were, word went around that they were hiring Australians as well as, no doubt, Americans, etc. Uh, there were many people in the media business here who said, oh, no, you'd never go and get a job at Al, Al Jazeera. Firstly, because they're terrorists and they'll be supporting terrorists and they'll be just taking a pro-Arab view, etc. But secondly, you'll never get a job back in the mainstream media here if you do. 
that has changed so dramatically. But you as an American, did you ever experience that sort of thing when you were first going to work there? Did people say, oh, no, you can't work for them? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that we've had to work on over the past five years. I mean, it, essentially, Al Jazeera English had to, the reporters on the ground had to deliver reports and convince the world that we were covering normal news and that we weren't and a in a serious, impartial way, in a, in yeah. a serious, uh, in a serious way. And so, you know, it's been interesting because when I was in China in 2007 and said I was the Al Jazeera correspondent, kind of got a funny look. And, you know, now it's totally different. Hey, I'm here, you know? Um, <laughs> so it, it, I'm, I'm very proud. I've um, been with the channel for quite a number of years. I can say that, you know, in China, if people had a problem with Al Jazeera English's coverage of China, the buck stops here. I was the one who determined, you know, what the stories were. Um, of course, working with my editors, but we have a lot of power. The correspondents on the, mm. on the ground at Al Jazeera have a lot of power. Um, we tell headquarters what's going on. And it's just been a great experience for me. Uh, 400 odd stories over the course of five years. Pitching stories that I, I feel that quite a lot of TV news organizations would not have bought um, without naming any names. But I, I do remember doing a story about hepatitis B discrimination in China. Um, I don't know how that would fly uh, with other news organizations, but my editor said, yeah. And maybe it's not um, totally entertaining you know, news. It's not captivating, but, but it is useful. But you were doing serious news as well, covering the Chinese politics and the political party, as well as lighter news, as well as medical news, education news, all sorts of news. Yeah, I was a general correspondent, and, um, and it's no secret. We, we very shortly, let me tell you a story. Um, so when we first started in China, we had meetings with the Chinese foreign ministry, uh, the government, and they are the gatekeepers. They approve our visas. And um, they were very excited for Al Jazeera, and they were just saying, just, just, you are the alternative to Western media. That's what they said. And um, I think this is a bit reductionist of me, but um, I hope certainly that the foreign ministry has a more sophisticated view on things. But my takeaway and impression was that they knew that the Bin Laden tapes were on Al Jazeera. And so if, if Al Jazeera was airing the Bin Laden tapes, then, then Al Jazeera is anti-American. And if Al Jazeera is anti-American, they must be pro-Chinese. <laughs> and so... Of course. Of course. And, and so, you know, I'm just having my lunch and listening to them. And um, off I toddled with our team and we did our stories, just like any other reporter. And I knew the moment the Chinese um, viewed us as having, well, being different than they expected is the moment when they rang me up on a Saturday morning when they knew that I was definitely in bed at that hour, called myself and gave me a lecture and ended with, if you're going to act like the BBC and CNN, we're gonna start treating you like the BBC and CNN. <laughs> Meaning if you're not a friend to China. It's quite a compliment. I know. Yeah, <laughs> it is. That's, yes. that's yeah. actually very good. Yeah. Okay, um, so then what led to the, um, Melissa was expelled from China. Mm. What led to that? I actually, they've, the, the government has never definitively said it, what it was that they were upset about. But I, I do think, you know, we're talking about disruption in the media. And Al Jazeera in China, you know, we were disruptors as well. We didn't act like what the Chinese expected. And I think Al Jazeera did not act like what many people globally and in America expected. And um, 
you know, I think that certainly contributed to it. Is I there any one story that you think um, no. could really... That's the, that's a tricky thing. And, you know, what we did our story fair that, share of human rights stories. The, sure. um, yeah, yeah, right. What was the story that got the Saturday morning um, phone call? Can you remember that one? Uh, you know, I can't... Yeah, Something it wasn't, it wasn't actually very negative, and it says volumes about how paranoid the Chinese government is. It was not a sensitive story. It was a story to mark the first year anniversary of Al Jazeera, a one-year you know, anniversary of Al Jazeera, so we were doing a global series wow. on looking at children in different countries and how they lived. So we were in Anhui province, and we spent a day filming this little girl who essentially had to live by herself because her parents were working in the city and she had to live out on the farm. So she cooked herself, went to school herself. It was kind of cute. They were just they freaked out. They didn't think it was oh. so cute. No, they, they were not. Cute. They did not think it was cute. And, you know. But I think this actually raises the real threat yeah. to media as a watchdog, and that's overweening government. That's right. The reason Melissa was kicked out of China is because the Chinese control who can work for you, where you can go, mm. and if you can never even get a visa in the first place. Mm. And I think the same is true in Western democracies as governments not only get bigger, but they get smarter about the ways that they communicate. I mean, the White House now doesn't hold half as many press conferences as it used to. They can tweet out the photos of the president and who he's meeting with, um, post up online what the conversation was all about, and reporters don't get to sit there and pepper the president and ask him, well, what did you really think you know, of what's going on in Syria today or the Benghazi scandal or the IRS targeting of conservative groups? You just can't do that anymore. And I think that, if anything, I think that is the biggest threat to media in our watchdog role. Well, so in fact if I that, could yeah, build on that just for a second, it's not just that you don't get to pepper the president with those questions. It's that this is a very buttoned-down White House um, that, that really seeks to control information. And so, um, you, you know, you're just not going to, um, you're not going to get much out of the staff uh, most of the time. You'll get a tidbit here or the, here and there, but, but, but they're, they're, they're very sort of um, obsessive about that, um, uh, control freaks, and I'm, I'm, I'm being, being kind. Um, I should also interject that this is an administration that has, um, uh, has gone after whistleblowers and leakers in a way that no administration previously, and I have been generally su supportive of, of, of the Obama administration and much of what it has done, but um, this, you know, this aspect, uh, along with the NSA aspect, drives me a little out of my mind because, um, you know, um, and prior to, to this administration, only three times in history had, um, had federal prosecutors used a 1917 statute called the Espionage Act to try to, um, to, to punish uh, whistleblowers. And one time was the famous Pentagon Papers case uh, of Daniel Ellsberg. And in that instance, the charges were dropped and it just it, it never happened. The Obama administration has now used it eight times um, in eight cases, which is just extraordinary. Um, uh, and talk about a chilling effect. Well, the press panel here, where they wanted to regulate the press. I mean, the idea that this was even discussed in Australia to me was really shocking. It shows you how, how, how vital freedom of speech is and how fragile it is. Well, and your point about overweening government, I mean, in a way, what you were just describing before was that the disruptive media, certainly digital media and tweeting and all those things that we all use, governments now use very effectively mm -hmm. to bypass us even more than they have by just controlling press conferences. So do you see that a lot with this particular administration or do you think it's going to be every administration now? 
Well, I'll give you a, one example. Um, I started writing about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's a completely unaccountable, unconstitutional agency. There's nothing ever like it in the history of America. I started calling them and asking them for comment, and I was screamed at on the phone. How dare you write about us, you awful person. I was shocked. I, I hung up the phone. Less than 10 hours later, there was a hit piece on me in the Huffington Post, front page, thousands of comments. Where's this woman's phone number? What's her address? Now, how would the Huffington Post have known that I had called a, a, an arm of government? Government was using another arm of the media to attack what we were saying, to try to intimidate me. So this is an example of where I think, not just the sophistication of government, but where this kind of collusion mm. and incredulity of news organizations needs to change and will change because it, media is going, going to be disrupted. Someone else will come in and write the story of, it won't just be me writing about the CFPB and maybe you'll get different points of view, maybe Eugene mm -hmm. disagrees with me. Mm -hmm. But that, that to me was very yeah. frightening. Um, but luckily we're not intimidated like that. We're gonna continue to be a watchdog. But that, that's a very scary episode. Yeah, that's interesting that it, um, from your point of view, they used another arm of the media. I just want to move on. Do you think newspapers and, say, let's stick with the traditional media organisations, will they, do they still play a dominant role in setting the public agenda? Or, and I suppose I'm sort of including Al Jazeera in that now too. I, I would call you a, you know, a dominant, if not traditional media, then you're part of a, a big... I'm not talking citizen journalism. Right. So do they still have the big role, Mary, in setting public agenda, you guys, all of the, the media organisations you three represent? I think readers, in many cases, set the agenda of what they need to know about. It's not us. We, we're serving the readership. Politicians are setting policy agendas. Businessmen are setting... Uh, agendas for their companies. I, I really kind of quail from this idea that media has this all great encompassing power to tell people what to think. Well, uh, I, I guess let's stick with the investigative well. area. Say we're trying to keep government to account. Sure. A mm -hmm. reader doesn't necessarily know what they should know about the government until a media You're outlet, told. presumably, um, lets them know that, look, there's something stinky going on There's here. nothing preordained about traditional media that they're going to survive that the Wall Street Journal is always going to be the highest circulation paper or the, the Washington Post or the Times. There's nothing preordained about that. We have to continue to break news and to serve the watchdog function well, otherwise we will not survive in this era. That's, that's true. I would, I would argue that traditional media are, are still play um, it, probably the, a dominant role and certainly an important role. And, and I keep coming back to the fact that the, um, uh, the Snowden revelations um, were made through newspapers, uh, in, you know, and, in, and so he had access to all these documents. He had an agenda, as um, uh, and you can argue back and forth whether Glenn Greenwald, the um, journalist with whom he f first worked, had an agenda. He also he was also in touch with Bart Gelman of the had been at the Washington Post for many years. Great, great journalist, sort of raised in our tradition. I guess what Jay Rosen would have called a new, tr new Testament tradition. Uh, he had left the post, but but came back on contract to do these stories. But they, but it, it all came through the filters of the Guardian, of the Washington Post, later of the New York Times, right. of, of of other other major 
um, media organizations. Yeah, so he didn't just let it out there on, on it, Twitter. It wasn't WikiLeaks. Yeah. It was different. Um, Melissa, what's your view about that? Well, I think that, yeah, I, I, I agree with both of you. I mean, it's just, it's still uh, the driving force. I mean, blogs and people who tweet, um, they, they can't fly, or some of them do, but most of them don't fly to Baghdad to figure out what's going mm -hmm. on. Most of them don't go to Syria uh, to see what's going on. I, I Actually, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but I do, I think it was Gizmodo that wrote a pretty scathing piece about um, a citizen journalist that decided to go to Syria at some point, about a, a year or 18 months ago, to find out what was really happening, you know, and not let the mainstream media tell him, you know, what was really going on. And it was like supposed to be a big deal, right? And he goes and he files very tepid reports, essentially parroting what journalists who've been sent in by <laughs> mainstream media organizations, um, you know, were reporting. So I, I do think that, you know, I. There's a tendency for people, and I think it's good that they, you know, um, hold news organizations to account, uh, but there's a tendency to sort of almost disbelieve what, you know, or question a journalist, and I think that's healthy, you know, like keep us on our toes. Uh, but I think that Syria example was very telling because this guy went in trying to disrupt, and he did absolutely no disruption. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, until they have the resources, we, we still have the resources to fly people everywhere and go to the far reaches of the world, um, you know, whether it's the Arctic to do stories on climate change, you know, get a blogger to do that, you know, it costs $60,000 to do that. You think you can do that? Yeah. All well, right, so, sorry. But do you need to? I mean, I remember the Far Eastern, I was actually hired by the Far Eastern Economic Review when I first came out to Hong Kong. Two weeks after I was hired, the stuff was on the ship, they closed it down. Um, why did they do that? Well, they did it because you have now local Asian publications serving local readerships, some of which in English, um, doing, playing the same role. Uh, so it, it used to be the go-to sort of publication. It used to be the go-to. It used to be sort of the economist of Asia, and then it sort of became irrelevant. Um, it doesn't mean... Like, like Time, yeah. Time Asia used to be out here. Newsweek Asia used to be out here. They're, they're not really necessary anymore. Or, or maybe not necessary, but someone else hasn't come in and invented something right. that, right. that so wants to are, be read in English on this part of the world. They are still, um, those local institutions you're talking about are probably still sort of a media organisation. Let me ask you about, each of you, about, you know, the, the much smaller kind of either news organisations that are really perhaps the individual journalist, the video blogger, perhaps another institution like a university, perhaps a public interest advocacy group. Can they, are they, will they in future fill in the gaps that you're talking about that well, Mary, you're probably not talking about too many gaps. Eugene, you seem to be saying that there mm -hmm. will be a gap. You feel perhaps a paper like yours, when it reduces from 900 to 600 journalists, can't do as well out in the boroughs or the, the mm -hmm. smaller institutions. Can these other organisations do it? And I suppose just for the audience here, um, they probably know ProPublica.org. And Mary, I know you have some interesting views about that. You know, the Centre for Investigative Journalism, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which is actually, for this audience, it was nominated with Jared Ryle, who's been a long-time investigative journalist here at the Fairfax Media. He's now gone to this consortium in Washington. They're up for a local Walkley Award, um, which is our prestigious mm -hmm. journalism awards. Um, you know, politico.com, those others sort of, I guess we would call them still the super disruptives. Do they have, will they do more in getting in and filling the gaps that you guys 
we guys who are in bigger news organisations can't do? Well, I, I can't. Are they already I mean, doing take, it or are you, you know, completely take... scathing of them? No, I mean, you look, Politico is, is doing it. I, th I don't put Politico in that category okay. because it's a big news organization, you know, owned by a bazillionaire um, uh, who uh, is pouring yet more money into it and has plans to expand into right. uh, and, and this and that. And, and in general, um, the, the, some, of the, some of the sort of nonprofit um, models that have uh, have come up to do some investigative journalism, I think, have done extremely valuable work. Um, but I don't think um, that's that's the ultimate solution. Um, I actually don't think that should be the ultimate solution um, because I think what we do has a value, and I think we ought it ought, it ought, it ought to survive as a business. And I do believe in in creative destruction, although it's easy to, easier for those who are not being destroyed to believe <laughs> it's creative destruction. But um, uh, but I I don't think that's you know that's going to fill this role. Uh, on the on the more local level, um, nor do I think you know the difficulty in saying that somebody big is going to come in and do that is that every time that's been tried it hasn't worked and, and, and the last was AOL which hired hundreds and hundreds of journalists around the around the United States uh, in a, in a, uh, an endeavor that was called Patch and the idea was to do hyper local news. Um, just, you know, school board meetings, neighborhood associations, everything, every local thing happening on your patch. But you had a little patch. Uh, and, uh, and there were going to be all these micro websites, you know, all around. And this was going to become a big revenue generator for uh, AOL, um, which is still searching for its new business model after dial-up kind of went away. Um, and uh, it has become instead a huge money sink, uh, sinkhole for AOL. It has spectacularly failed, and they're keeping it going, frankly, in my view, for the um, ego of the CEO rather than for any benefit it does um, for readers or for the company. Mary, do you think... Oh, sorry, Melissa, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say that, um, you know, I do think the more the merrier, you know, if you have NGOs and universities trying to fill in that gap, these, the Center for Investigative Reporting, ProPublica, great. Um, but one thing that's really telling is in the hiring of these hundreds of people to Al Jazeera America, a lot of the, those people came from these sort of um, nonprofit news organizations, mainly because the funding is so iffy. Right? And they, they, people want stable jobs, so they jumped at the chance to have a staff position at Al Jazeera America. And I think that that says something about the, um, the, the nature of these organizations. They're still not on solid footing. I welcome them and I hope that they get stronger, but they're not at that point where they can do that yet. And if a journalist has an option, it looks like they voted uh, to join that mainstream, you know, established news organization. Yeah, and I mean, a number of them, your paper in particular, mm -hmm. of course, has just been bought by a yes. gazillionaire too, Jeff Yes, a Jeff prince Bezos. among men, by the way, Jeff Bezos. Oh, prince among, <laughs> among men. Is he, did you get that, guy. the cameraman? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be broadcast back to no. Washington. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, Mary, will this come down to, and of course, America is a perfect country for that, that, you know, if you're going to have non-mainstream media, it's got to be supported by these billionaires, and that's well, the I, only way it can be done? I don't know any poor people that employ others. 
So I, I'm glad billionaires are jumping in. The more the merrier. And I, I, I agree with Melissa. Uh, if you want good journalists, you have to pay them uh, and, and, and have jobs there for them. Um, but just one thing to note about organizations like um, uh, nonprofits, uh, like ProPublica, I think there's this notion that they're somehow neutral arbiters and somehow that's good for, for journalism and they, we, we should wish them success and that they... they well, they're not neutral arbiters. <laughs> I mean, ProPublica was foremost, like the Times, bashing the big banks, uh, pro-Obama, pro-climate change, pro-Palestinian. Um, th no, this is not a neutral arbiter of news. This is an organization with an agenda. Now, that's fine. Um, but let's be honest about what the agenda is. And in fact, I believe if they were more honest about the agenda, that they'd be more successful. Because, as was just said in the previous panel, uh, in some ways, they'd, they'd be more honest about what they were actually trying to achieve by doing that. Um, if you're going to be the New York Times, say that. Uh, there's a separate question as to whether or not that's a successful model, because there already is a New York Times. So it might be more sure. successful to do something different. But uh, just because you know, they're, they're, they're non-profit or affiliated with the university doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the watchdog that you hope them to be for business or for government. Yeah, that's... That's interesting. Okay, and I, I was supposed to remind you that we uh, will have some questions, so think of your questions. That'll be in about one or two minutes' time, and I think we are very much trying to stick to time. So there's a microphone at this end, just three rows back. There's also one upstairs, and if you would identify yourself when you, when you do ask a question. Just on that point, Mary, about there was a little dig in there at the New York Times. Now, I know you're all competitors, and of course we're all com competing with each other, do you think there's a uh, not enough keeping, say, the White House, back to one of the original points that Eugene was making, not keeping the White House accountable enough? No, I think that's why... Uh, sorry, not by the, just the New York Times, no, by I, anyone I, in journalism I, I, at the moment. Look, I think there's a great opportunity for, uh, to keep, whether it's the White House or it's big business or the regulatory state, accountable. I think it's open, in fact, the lack of curiosity about what the government and the regulatory state is doing has opened up a lot of opportunities for places like Fox News to really dig in and to, to press stories that are quite shocking stories that Americans care about, and that's why they're tuning into the six o'clock news on Fox, because it's the only place that they're gonna see it discussed. Um, you know, in some, some respects, as a competitor, I'm glad that they're, they're not pursuing these stories because it's good for me. People are going to buy my buy newspaper. But I do think there's a lot of opportunity there to keep, to keep these, these groups accountable. Okay. The, I mean, what happens in countries without the support of either rich individuals or, you know, big companies like, I guess, all of our media companies? Do they depend on a single rich family or something like that to be able to keep their democratic processes going by having a journalism presence? What, um, what, uh, well, I suppose I'm thinking a lot of countries do not have the sort of mm -hmm. um, journalistic depth that certainly America has, Great Britain, Australia, Canada, you know, the Western democracies. Yeah. And, uh, and certainly China is an interesting one. It's going to, if it doesn't already, have huge power, economic, political, military kind of power in the next 10, 20 years. Does it have a healthy enough journalistic base, do you think, Melissa? Or is that kind of impossible with the political model? Yeah. Hold on to that thought. I'll quickly add that, um, you know, you're mentioning other countries, and I just suddenly remembered, I think, our someone in our PR office actually told, told me a, a while ago that 
um, Al Jazeera English is super popular in Nigeria mm. um, because of our strong coverage in Africa. Mm. And I think it was like the second most watched anything on, on, mm -hmm. on television in Nigeria. And Nigeria being the most populous country in Africa, it's actually very significant and a huge deal. So, you know, there, there is a place for something like Al Jazeera to provide news for countries like Nigeria. Now, having said that, in China, you know, Al Jazeera is simply not available. Um, you know, they, they limit what is available in, in the country. And for most people, even CNN and BBC, you can see it in a hotel room, um, four stars or five stars hotel for visitors, but a vast majority of people do not have access to something like that. So they are dependent on state media. Um, state media, depending on where they're based, uh, some of the pro province-based state media organizations are actually pretty feisty. Uh, but still, it's, China's a big question mark, right? I mean, it's, it matters what China does. There's 1.3 billion people. It's a huge part of um, the global population. And so it is worth watching what um, it is going to do. And, and my concern is actually, you know, their soft power reach, right? The, the billion dollars they've spent to grow um, Chinese um, global media, such as CCTV, and they have also, in the United States, hired hundreds of journalists. So, I mean, and, and you know, some of their news reporting is actually pretty good, but it's also noticeable what they don't report on. Mm. Um, but is an audience savvy enough to, to recognize that. And, I, and the other thing is, you know, China Daily, the Chinese state paper, one of the state organ, uh, organized papers, had an insert in the Washington Post. Mm -hmm, yeah. And mm -hmm, um, if yeah. you, if you, I've actually never physically seen, held one myself, but I've looked at pictures. Mm -hmm. If you buy the Washington Post, you're not a sophisticated, mindful person. You know, you flip, 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 and you flip into China Daily, and you're suddenly reading something written and sponsored by the Chinese the government. State without necessarily noticing that you've actually crossed over from Wash Post to an ad insert that looks a lot like actual an actual piece of newspaper. So. Okay. Well, I, I do just want... China Daily really oh. big up there. But, uh, but and, right. can, can I interject just one thing just just about developing countries? Um, I think you'd argue that technological innovation and the fact that so much is migrating to the web um, it can, can help the fostering of diverse uh, and, and active and critical voices in a lot of countries because the cost of, of entry becomes much lower. You don't have to buy presses and ink and distribution. But it's harder in a place like Australia or Britain where you have a state broadcaster that has an unlimited and increasing budget that is crowding out private competition. Oh, Why do you a, think that's a controversial <laughs> note to, to end on? But we're not actually going to end on that because I just wanted to ask one final comment, and if you could keep them brief, you know, what is really the appropriate role for citizens in the watchdog media of the future? Will they have a role, or are they still? Is an individual still not able to be totally believed by? readers, and I guess I'm talking about a blog, not an Edward Snowden who's got access to, you know, a huge amount of information and he leaks it out there. I'm talking about an individual who has a role in the media. Melissa? I think it takes time to build trust. And so it's entirely possible for a citizen to be very devoted and start building um, that sort of track record. But you can't just do it and expect people to mm. believe you. Um, so I think that that's, that's, that's logical though. I mean, like I said earlier, Al Jazeera English had to do it, each one of us. Um, no one knew what we were doing in China and it was through years of work that eventually they said, oh, you know, that bureau there is pretty solid, but it takes time. 
I, I agree. I know, I know bloggers in the United States who have become... Bloggers, Twitterers, you know, yeah, Right, who have yeah. become kind of name brand in, their, in, a, in a niche or, or a geographical niche. area. Yeah, but, but sometimes important stuff, you know. Okay. They, but, but, um, but they've done it by establishing credibility and a track record. And, and some place where people will notice them, right? So, right. so noticed, yeah. you know, they find their way onto you know Daily Coast, or they find their way onto here or there. But they, but somewhere they're they're going to be seen. I agree. Okay. okay. All right. Well, they all ended on a on a note of unison. We do have a question from the audience, and then we're really. I'm sorry, we have gone over time, so I'm just going to take this lady's question. If you wouldn't mind just identifying yourself. Siobhan McHugh, University of Wollongong. I just wonder, is it American, Al Jazeera American, going to make Americans less American-centric, do you think? That, you know, Americans seem to have such an American-focused view of the world. And, I mean, Al Jazeera English does exist already, so why Al Jazeera American? And looking at your front page, you've got a range of American stories, but also quite a good take on international affairs. Is that going to be a byproduct, even, do you think, which would be helpful? Oh, I, th I think that's way above my pay grade in terms of um, <laughs> the direction of the channel. I mean, look, we are in many ways a startup. Uh, like I mentioned, we hired hundreds of people in four or five months. And I think it will take some time uh, for us to figure out what we are in the United States. And I think that management, you know, um, they have ideas, but uh, we're still feeling our way. It's, it's, it is a startup, and I don't know where that balance is going to be and whether it's going to... Um, focus more on international news or more on American you know, news in the United States. And certainly we're expanding a lot on the ground in the U.S. Uh, but yeah, of course, we have Al Jazeera English, our international arm, and I suppose it depends on the story cycle, right? Um, if, if there's huge news in Syria, then all attention shifts over there, mm -hmm. and we will lean on Al Jazeera English's um, resources. I think it will be a couple of years before we get a sense of what this new channel is all about, including myself. All right, thank you. Would you please thank this panel, Mary Kissel, Melissa Chan and Eugene Robinson. Thank Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.